This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The Hamilton Tiger Cats traded quarterback Zach Caleros to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders yesterday and in return received a 10th overall pick in the 2018 CFL draft. Caleros spent four seasons in Hamilton and now finds himself in Regina. Kent Austin is the VP of Football Operations for the Ticats, and he joins us now. Kent, Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, same to you, Rick. Thanks for having me. Well, take us through how this trade went down. Well, we uh, uh, other teams uh, throughout the league have, have contacted us, uh, you know, after the season, uh, showing their interest in Zach and. Uh, like you know, any any other you know, process that we have uh, as it relates to players, we'll we'll uh, entertain offers and see if that improves our football team. And uh, the talks and discussions with Saskatchewan uh, became more serious over time, and uh, and they they certainly demonstrated their their willingness to uh, to pursue this in in an authentic way, and and uh, not just you know throw a line in the water. Um, so the the discussions got pretty serious, and and we made a trade that we felt like was was best for this football team, and and we also think it's also a good good move for Zach as well. He's going to go to a good football team, a competitive team, and, uh, and he'll do well there. Like any like any deal, uh, it, it takes weeks to consummate. It's not something that happens in a matter of a few hours or even a few days, right? No, yeah, especially especially a, a, a trade like this. I mean, you, you're talking about a. You know, starting quarterback in the league and in a nine-team league, so uh, things like this take some time. Are you happy with what you got back, or, or were you hoping for when this process began, hoping for a little bit more? No, I, I think uh, the situation that we're in right now, with respect to that position, um, we're, we're pretty pleased to, to get the tenth overall pick. We're, we're now sitting at two, ten, eleven, and fifteen, uh, in a pretty good draft. So we we have four of the first fifteen picks right now, uh, with possibly more to come. Uh, you mentioned other teams were interested. How many other teams were interested? I, I know you're not going to tell me who they are, but how many were? There? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a couple. There's a couple others. Yeah. Uh, can we say uh, two others in the East, perhaps? Maybe. No, we're not going to. We're not okay. going to detail that. Yeah. Now, the best trades that are made benefit both teams, and I, and I know you had Zach's best interests in mind because you're a big fan of him. But was right. your was your preference to move him to the West? No, that wasn't part of the uh, equation at all. Uh, when when we look at uh, any moves from a, from a personal standpoint, we look at it from do, does that excuse me does that move uh, help our football team? What, what's best for our club? Um, if if uh, the answer to that is no, it doesn't help our club, then then it doesn't matter. If it if if it, the answer is yeah, it helps our football team become better and stronger uh, for the future, both in immediate. Immediately and uh, you know, and and long term, then does the uh, does the move whether it goes to the east or the west that shouldn't override, um, you know, the attractiveness of the, of that offer, right? So we're we're going to do things that improve our football team and and not worry about uh, those types of things. We're chatting with Tiger Cats uh, Vice President of Football Operations Kent Austin here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill this week. You may have already answered this this question, uh, but I'll ask it anyways. How much consideration was given to bringing Zach back in 2018, or, or was was there no chance of that? Oh no, no, there there was always a chance of that. Absolutely. Uh, again, we're going to piece the the football team together in a way that gives us the best chance to win football games, to be the most competitive team we can possibly be. Uh, in an important position like that, uh, we we all all options are on the table. That being said, uh, we made a decision uh, in June, made a decision. We made a decision as an organization in the direction we wanted to go. And because of that, we decided to to entertain those offers for Zach and, and then strike the best deal we could. There are rumblings that uh, you're going to re-sign Jeremiah Masoli to an extension. Is this going to happen? Uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Uh, there's uh, there's nothing official at this point, but uh, uh, I would I would... I would stay tuned. Johnny Menzel, a uh, terrific player at the college level. Uh, thin, things didn't really work out in the NFL for him. He's had some off-field issues. Uh, the CFL has done their due diligence. He is allowed to, to join the league. The deadline for your team to sign, trade, or, or release him from the Nick list uh, is this Sunday. Is Johnny Menzel going to be a tie cat in 2018? I can't predict that at this point. I mean, we've obviously been in discussions with his agent. I uh, worked very closely with Eric Burkhart uh, through this entire process, uh, obviously because we have his rights. And it's been a long process for Johnny. And he's gone through a lot. And 
Um, uh, and I've walked uh, through this with, with Eric Burkhart, you know, this entire time. So uh, there, there are ongoing discussions, and, and uh, we certainly understand the deadline that's in front of us on, on Sunday, and we'll do, again, what's best for the organization. There's been a lot of moving parts in this in this process. Uh, as as a VP of football ops, have you enjoyed the process, or has it just been too too many loopholes? <laughs> I think I understand the question, but look, I, the the thing that's great is is you know, every situation is different, and and being able to to work through these situations and to learn and to grow and and to get better, uh, and, uh, you know, at, at all these scenarios is is a good thing. Uh, we should be able to learn as as administrators and and personnel guys to uh, from each situation and to get better and to and to make more discerning decisions going forward. Uh, enjoying it or not enjoying it, uh, if you don't like your job, uh, then you, you shouldn't be in it. So every situation that we encounter is, is enjoyable as long as you have the right heart behind it and you're doing right by the by the team. I don't want to spend too much time on a guy who's not even on the team, but I, I do have two more questions regarding uh, Manziel. Sure. Does he help your football team if he joins if he joins this week? Well, if, if he if he joins this week and 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 we have a contract register with the league, then we obviously feel like he's going to help us. So we wouldn't have done that. So uh, uh, just you know, we we're 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 in that process right now, and and we'll see how that plays out over the over the next few days. But listen, he's a he's a very talented guy. We all know that. Uh, he's clearly one of the best you know college football players I've ever seen. Um, Play and he's gone through a lot. It's been well documented. Uh, some of it is obviously hyperbole, but but a lot of it's uh, you know very 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 accurate. So uh, we've done our due diligence and and are continuing to do that and to vet the situation properly and and to try to make a, a great decision for our team. Do you have to? And I'm I'm, I'm it's almost like I'm speaking like a fan now. But do you have to uh, sign Masoli before Manzel? Because if you sign Manzel, Masoli might say I'm not going to be the number one. I'm out of here. Uh, every great quarterback that I've been around could care less about those things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, uh, I know Jer- listen, I've got an unbelievable relationship with Jeremiah, and, and I know him really, really well. Uh, he isn't going to care. <laughs> so uh, the great ones don't care. They're, they're willing to come in and compete. It doesn't matter who you have on the roster, and, uh, and, and they should believe that they're the best guy for the job and, and can, can win a championship for the football team. Okay, last one on Manziel, and then we'll move on to other things. Have you, field, have you fielded trade requests for his rights? Uh, there's been some discussions there, uh, but that's been going on for a while. So it ebbs and flows, right, Rick? Like it, it, it's, it's not a linear process. And, you know, it depends on the dynamics of the team at that time. And then, you know, that dynamic of the team that inquired might, might change and, and their interest, you know, might, might subside somewhat. But uh, you know, we'll see, but we're we're gonna again, we're gonna do uh, what we need to do to, to to structure this thing in such a way to to put us back on the map uh, as a chance to uh, you know to win a championship. We're chatting with uh, Ken Tostin, VP of Football Operations uh, with the Hamilton Tiger Cats here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill this week. With free agency coming now, uh, just a few yeah. weeks away, really, there, there are several stars on your team who could test the waters. Uh, Luke Tasker's in that boat, uh, Brandon Banks. Right. Uh, with the salary cap in place, is it going to be difficult to re-sign everyone that you want? Uh, we'll see how it plays out. It, 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 you know, we, have a, we have a priority list, obviously, on, on who uh, you know, the, the coaching staff, in particular June, uh, feels like our priorities to bring back to the football team. And uh, we've structured that and, and certainly structured what is scenarios in the event that a couple of guys, we don't get signed before free agency and, tr- and test the waters and possibly lose them. You know, what is the backup plan to make sure that the production that they provided for us is replaced? Um, but I, I feel pretty good about where we're at in, in this process right now. We've done a pretty good job, I believe, over the last few years in getting our key players re-signed. Uh, we, we haven't had many cases where we've lost players that we, act, you know, we really, really prioritized at the top of the list to, to come back. Circling back to the Caleros trade, you received the 10th overall pick from the Rough Riders. You now, I think, own four picks in the top right. 15. Does this, right. does this draft hold some really promising prospects? We, we like the draft, and, and we certainly like it in a couple areas where we feel like there's some need uh, for us, uh, which is part of the reason why we wanted to prioritize getting picks uh, loaded into the first 15. 
Uh, so I, I think for us right now, we're we're sitting in a pretty good position for for a pretty deep draft, and especially specifically to to positions that uh, that we're looking at. Uh, there are some quality players. But again, if it improves your football team, you can trade those picks for guys, you know, pieces that are going to come back the other way to help. That's to correct. Help the club. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, again, that's that's exactly right, Rick. So, having assets is is always a positive thing, and and what we do with those assets. Uh, as it relates to building the entire puzzle and the pieces of those puzzle uh, is open. And, and we'll look at all scenarios to, to get our team better. Is it going to be weird seeing Zach in uh, Ryder Green? <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of his, and uh, it's a great situation for him. Uh, that, that, that community, I, I played and coached there. That community will embrace him immediately. Uh, he's going to be a rider, you know, right from right from day one, and uh, he'll realize the support that he'll have there. It's going to be a little weird to see it, but uh, it's a good situation for him. And and I think we've we 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 got a great asset coming back, uh, you know, our way in the trade. He he makes his return uh, to Tim Hortons Field on July 19th. He won't say it publicly, but he probably has it circled on the calendar. Oh yeah, but no, you know exactly what I do. He's got all games circled. <laughs> Very true. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He, he, just like Jeremiah. I mean, you know, they're they're competitive guys, and they want to win every football game. And uh, Zach's 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 very uh, diligent in his preparation, and and he won't treat you know one game any more important than the other game because he won't want to slight the the other games, right? So in his preparation. Yeah. Speaking of Saskatchewan, they've released uh, quarterback Kevin Glenn. Any interest in a thirty-nine-year-old quarterback? <laughs> These are all good questions, Rick. Uh, you know, we, look, we we feel pretty good about the position we're in right now in the quarterback uh, uh, spot. But that being said, uh, we will always look at uh, as 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 time rolls on in this off season and how free agency plays out and how that position or any other position on our football team is taking shape. If we can improve. Uh, that position, and, and this, in this particular case, this hypothetical, if he improves that position for us, even from a depth standpoint, we'll look at it. Uh, if, if we don't feel like he does and we want to move in a different direction, then we won't. be interesting to see. I mean, I don't think he's done. I mean, he's 39, but he's, he plays like he's 29. Listen, Kevin's done a great job. I mean, he's, uh, I know him. He's, uh, you know, every situation he's been put in, and in many, many cases, he's had to learn very quickly. And it's a real testament to his ability to absorb uh, new terminology and different philosophies offensively with all the different uh, offenses that he's played in and, and uh, has been able to, um, you know, to perform very quickly in those scenarios and, and to help football teams. So, uh, obviously, he's a very bright guy, has a lot of experience, and, and uh, has performed at a high level, uh, which is evidenced by the fact that he's played for so long. He's a true pro. Uh, Kent, thanks for the time today. All right. Thanks so much, Rick. Kent Austin, VP of Football Operations for the Hamilton Tiger Cats, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show, reflecting on uh, yesterday's big trade, uh, sending quarterback Zach Caleros, the, the one-time face of the franchise, the cornerstone of the organization, sent off to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders uh, yesterday for the 10th overall pick in the 2018 CFL draft. I believe draft day is May 3rd. Uh, that 10th overall pick, obviously a second rounder, the start of the second round. Uh, Caleros, four really up and down seasons in black and gold when you consider what happened towards the end of his tenure. I mean, he came here, a ball of fire, was an MOP candidate in 2015 before going down with that ACL tear, and that team was just rifling through the competition. 2014 led the Ticats to a Grey Cup final before losing to Calgary on a much uh, controversial final play, or at least one of the final plays of the game, and Brandon Banks returning that uh, punt for a TD. Uh, but towards the end, things just not did not work out for Caleros. Yes, he had the ACL tear, he had a couple of concussions, and... A lot of people say, hey, you know, the talent around him, at least on the offensive line, they didn't pull their weight, and Caleros was running around, and we saw that time and time again earlier on this year. New coach comes in in June Jones. He says, listen, we're 0-8. we got a huge Labor Day classic coming up against Toronto. we got to make a change. And what, what bigger change, at least on the field, that you can make is a flip at quarterback. And sometimes it doesn't work, and sometimes it does. And I think 
for most of the final 10 games of the year, the jury was out on Jeremiah Masoli. But he won me over towards the last, I want to say, three, four, five games of the season in which he was consistently throwing for 300 yards. Yeah, you'd still get those those drives or those series where you thought, what's he doing on that play? Where is he going there? Why, why such a breakdown? Another turnover. But, I mean, he clicked with Brandon Banks. That offense looked completely different than what it did uh, earlier on in the season with Caleros at the helm. And I know there, there was different guys on the field. But the Ticats looked at their roster and they said, hey, Caleros is making this amount of money, set to become the highest paid in the league. Uh, we have Masoli, obviously June Jones. He's a believer in him. They have Johnny Manziel waiting in the wings, and I think a deal is going to get done, and we'll see Manziel in black and gold sometime next week after he signs. They'll bring Masoli back because I think they're big believers in what he can do. And I, I'm i not going to say it would be unfair to Manziel to throw him to the Wolves and say, hey, Johnny, you're, you're now our starter. You're really our, our only guy if Masoli leaves through free agency because you're not going to you know start Golson or Evans. They have very, very limited CFL experience. So come next week, you might you might have Masoli and Manziel both under contract. You should circle July 19th on your calendar because at Tim Hortons Field, Zach Caleros and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders are going to come in, and that is going to be an unbelievably entertaining football game. And you know he's going to be saying all the right things, and you know, you know Kent and June Jones and all the players in the Ticats going to be saying the right things. And as they should. Zach is a stand-up guy, and I think he'll do very, very well in Saskatchewan. And I think the fear when you're a fan, and hey, we've seen this before in Hamilton, that when you lose, or even more importantly, when you trade someone who has been a star or still has the potential to be a star, the thought in the back of your mind is the what if. What if he still can get it done? What if he can still be an elite quarterback, and he comes back not only to haunt us, but he leads his new team to championships. As we know, we haven't had one of those in town since 1999. Best of luck to Zach, uh, and of course, best of luck to the Ticats, and hopefully their plans work out with uh, whether it is Masoli and Manziel or whoever comes to town. Maybe Kevin Glenn will be back here. Who knows? You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, We switch gears to the Ontario Science Centre, which has named universal flu vaccine research by Dr. Matthew Miller at McMaster University as one of the most underrated scientific achievements of 2017. The World Health Organization says the flu is estimated to cause about 3 to 5 million cases of severe illness and about 290,000 to 650,000 deaths around the world every year. Now, we're quite familiar with the flu shot. Health professionals say it remains the best option to protect against the virus. And we've also heard this year included that the flu shot may not be 100% effective in preventing you from getting sick because, well, there's some mismatches from year to year. But what if we had a universal flu vaccine that would protect us against all flu strains? Well, that sounds good. That's where Dr. Matthew Miller from McMaster University steps in and steps up to the plate here on The Bill Kelly Show. Dr. Miller, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. We only have a few minutes, but let's start by talking about uh, your much-heralded research. What, what are you up to? So our group's really interested in trying to make uh, a flu vaccine that overcomes a lot of the limitations that we experience with the current seasonal flu vaccine. Um, most importantly, we're trying to help to design a vaccine that avoids um, the potential for mismatching, which obviously results in greatly decreased vaccine efficacy when that occurs. And we're also, um, in doing that, uh, trying to make a vaccine that wouldn't require annual revaccination, something that would last, you know, maybe on the order of 10 years or so before people need to be revaccinated, which I think would also, you know, greatly increase vaccine rates just because of the the inconvenience associated with needing to get revaccinated every year currently. My son would absolutely love that. He's not a fan of getting the flu shot. Yeah, I think I think that's a common sentiment. Nobody <laughs> likes, you know, going into the clinic and getting that needle every year. 
And all of this research is being done in our own backyard at McMaster University. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, um, our group is certainly, as with any sort of major effort uh, like this, we are um, collaborating with really a large group uh, of labs around the world, especially um, in New York and the U.S., uh, to to move this forward. Um, you know, I think any all of these sorts of, you know, really major exciting advancements take sort of an international effort. And uh, both government agencies and, and pharmaceutical companies alike, I think, have shown uh, a lot of interest in this because of its obvious, um, you know, potential benefits to global public health. With any research or new medications uh, and whatnot, uh, before it can be used by the public, there has to be testing done. Can you describe that process and, and how long that's going to take? Right, yeah. So um, any any new drug, including vaccines, goes through extensive uh, safety and efficacy testing before it's made available to the public. And that usually starts with the discovery process in laboratories where the vaccine is tested for safety and efficacy in animals. And um, for the for the universal flu vaccine that, that we've been involved with, um, that Though that arm of study has been largely completed. And after that is done, the vaccine typically moves into clinical trials in humans. Um, and, and most people know that there are three stages to those trials. The first is uh, safety trials to make sure that, that the drug is safe. The second is efficacy trials um, to make sure that it or immunogenicity trials, I'm sorry, in the case of vaccines, to show that it, it um, is able to initiate the type of desired immune response that we want. And then, of course, uh, efficacy trials are done to ensure that the vaccine actually works in protecting people from flu. So this vaccine uh, entered combined phase one, two uh, safety and immunogenicity trials uh, in the fall of this year. So it's definitely moving in the right direction towards, um, you know, getting to people uh, in the general public. So are we looking at two years, five years, 10 years? Probably uh, more like a five to 10 year window by the time it advances through uh, all of these trials, assuming that, that the vaccine works as expected and that, um, you know, there is an extensive sort of optimization required. Now, you're no stranger to this next question. Uh, There remains concerns in our society that vaccines not only don't work, but they could cause harm. The anti-vax movement has pointed out to high mercury levels in vaccines, autism, HDHD concerns. Uh, You're developing a universal flu vaccine. What do you say to those non-believers who may not even look at this universal flu vaccine as a positive? Right. Well, I mean, I think that the evidence is very, very clear that vaccines are among the safest drugs uh, available today. I mean, if you if you really look hard at the evidence for vaccine safety and compare the number of doses that are, that are administered every year to the number of adverse reactions, vaccines are safer than, than most things that we consider completely innocuous, things you can buy off the shelf at pharmaceutical or at um, Pharmacies like Tylenol or Advil have far higher rates of adverse events than vaccines do. Um, in terms of a universal vaccine, I, I would have to think that people who are vaccine hesitant or, or anti-vaccine, this would be seen as a major positive for those people because it would massively decrease the number of vaccines that an individual has to get over the course of their lives. So I think if there's any vaccine that, that someone with those kinds of sentiments could buy into, it would be something like this. Next time I get into a, a, a vaccine anti-vax argument, I'm just going to call you up. Okay, great. Dr. Miller, thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Matthew Miller, uh, Assistant Professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences at McMaster University and doing some phenomenal work on trying to develop a usable universal flu vaccine that, uh, who knows, we could see in in five to ten years. And and (laughs) if we didn't have to get a shot every year, I'm I'm a guy who gets a flu shot. I'm a believer. My, My whole family does it. If, if you don't, hey, that's, that's your prerogative. That's fine. But uh, if, if we were able to get one that would last a few years and not have to get one every other year, as I said, my son would be, he'd be okay with that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Employees at uh, Tim Hortons locations owned by the children of the co-founders of the franchise say they have reduced employee benefits to cut back 
paid breaks to help offset Ontario's minimum wage hike to $14 an hour. Jerry Horton Joyce and Ron Joyce Jr. wrote a letter to employees at their two Tim Hortons restaurants in Coburg, Ontario last month. It says employees who want to continue receiving dental and health benefits will have to pay for a portion of it. And it says employee breaks will also no longer be compensated. Let's bring in one of our experts and a well-rounded individual, um, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Probably well-rounded because of too many visits to Tim Hortons. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to be slamming Tim Hortons because they're legally allowed to do this, right? Well, can I just start off this way, Rick? When this story broke yesterday, I was outraged by this story. This this is just terrible, and there's a small part of me that wonders if this is going to wind up being fake news. Now, let me explain. I've seen the letter that was sent out. It's a typed letter with no signatures on it. Conceivably, they could have written this letter, but also conceivably somebody else could have to stir up outrage. Clearly what they wanted was someone to say, this minimum wage is just wrong, look what it's doing to us. But this is such a perfect storm of a story. Let me give you three quick examples. First, who are these franchisees? I guarantee you there are small business people struggling to adapt to the new minimum wage. I expect that story. But these aren't your typical small business owners. This is the son and daughter of the founders of Tim Hortons. Ron Joyce Sr., who's no longer involved with the thing, is worth $1.38 billion. Those are dollars that are going to find their way into the hands of these people one day. They don't need this extra bit of money. Number two... They can't be reached for comment because they're vacationing in Florida, and they're going to be down there for months at a time. Boy, what a struggling small business person this is. And then three, this nickel and diming of the employees. I understand that people are concerned about the, the minimum wage hike, but look, a Tim Hortons, an average Tim Hortons sells 200 cups of coffee an hour. $2.40 means that for every employee you have, you have to raise the price of a cup of coffee a penny. So raise it a nickel, raise it a dime. Heck, raise the donuts a dime as well. You just don't have to do this. It, to me, this is just outrageous that they've done this. And I, I suspect if it is real, it's really going to bounce back in their faces. So if you're a betting man, you're saying this is this is not a real, this is not really happening? It, it's just too extreme and too perfect of a story. In other words, you've got people who are going to inherit a billion dollars, people who are wealthy enough to vacation in Florida, and they've chosen the most extreme way possible of nickel and diming their employees, making them uh, saying, I'm not going to pay you for a 15-minute break. A break, by the way, where you really aren't going to leave the store, you're still there and you're likely going to be tidying up on your break anyway. It, just, it is so extreme of a story, it, it just feels too good to be true. Some residents uh, in the town, at least according to these uh, uh, reports out of Coburg, that they're going to be boycotting this Tim Hortons franchise, but that's only going to hurt the employees as well, right? Well, it, it could hurt them as well. I, I, you know, Clearly, let me start off by saying as well that this is a letter from a franchisee, so those people are upset should not be upset at Tim Hortons' head office. Right. This is not a policy nationwide. As well, Tim Hortons nationwide raised the price of a cup of coffee, 10 cents, in December, and at that time they claimed it was to give franchisees wiggle room because of the minimum wage increases. So they've already done a price increase. This seems to have been done, if it's true, by a local franchisee and, and who, is, who is absolutely tone deaf, absolutely tone deaf, to the situation of their workers. So boycott, write nasty letters, protest outside. Uh, uh, this, this visibility this story is getting, and by the way, how visible is this story? This is getting retweeted across North America. A company like Fox News loves this kind of a story because this shows how right Donald Trump is and how wrong everybody else is. This is going to get headlines uh, uh, across North America I'm not sure if this is really what they did. They wanted such exposure. Tim Hortons has come out and said, uh, hey, you know, franchisees can do what they want, basically. Do you expect them to come out and say something else or something stronger? No, because they're actually right. You're a nationwide chain. Each franchisee has to respond to the conditions in that province and in that city. So there are lots of variations in the way the businesses are run, city by city, province by province, because you have to respond to the local conditions. 
Having said that, the other thing that's in the back of my mind is that there has been a simmering battle between Tim Horton's head office and a group, and I won't get the name of it quite right, Northwest or Great North Franchise Association. In other words, some of the franchisees have banded together because they don't quite like Restaurant Brands International, the new parent company of, of Tim Horton's, and there's been a battle back and forth about royalties, they don't think the head office is spending enough money on promotion. They think they're using the extra royalties to pad their bottom line. The other side fires back. This could also be part of that battle going on. But it's just, it is so tone deaf to the situation going on. Again, I want to be clear. I know for a fact that there are some small business people struggling with this question of the new minimum wage. And I really do believe the way forward is going to see some small price increases, a nickel here, a dime here, a quarter someplace else, and this better better rate of pay can go to the working poor. We'll, we'll work that out over the next three months. So I've been expecting a couple of stories of people struggling to make ends meet, maybe even a business going under because it just can't absorb all these costs. You know, I expected that. But this story, because of how tone-deaf it is, people who are going to inherit a billion dollars one day, people who are vacationing at, I'm sure, a posh winter home in Florida, and this is what they're doing to their employees. Uh, you know, I, if I could get the pitchforks and the uh, and the, uh, <laughs> you know, and the, the torches? torches, I'd be marching on them tonight. <laughs> uh, really quick, yes or no, do you think workers in other, not only Tim Hortons, and, and, and whether this, this story is true or not, should other workers be worried that this might happen? Well, yes, and I, I think I think the other concern I have is that there are some small business people. We're now four days into the new year, who may be overreacting. You know, when you make a change to the system, for some reason, human nature is to assume the absolute worst. So, because oh, this is really, really going to affect me, let's slash this and cut this and do something else. And then a month or two later, they realize, hey, you know, that wasn't really all that bad after all. This letter has that at the end. They know, by the way, these changes can be reversed if it turns out things aren't as bad. But I do suspect some people will overreact. And the trick is to engage in dialogue, talk to the management back and forth. Good managers are going to find a way to steer through this to minimize the impact on employees. If they don't, maybe you're working for the wrong person right from the beginning. Marvin, thanks for the time today. Anytime. Marvin Reiner, uh, business professor, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. We do have time for a call, and uh, Ben has called into the program. Hey, Ben, how are you? Hey, I'm, I'm good. I'm good, Rick. Um, I, I think part of also what's lost here is um, I'm a business owner in retail, um, and this sort of price increase, we're hearing 20 or 30 percent. It's actually the pace has been much greater. We're starting from, what, four, four years ago at nine-something, uh, there was a jump up to 10 or $11, and now we're talking 30%. So we're really talking a 40%, 50% increase in about five years. Um, that's the problem. Is how, what business, what government, what anyone, any enterprise can absorb that kind of cost increase in such uh, a short period of time? And not uh, let your professor uh, previously, with the tenured uh, position and the guaranteed paycheck, uh, most businesses, small businesses, are making you know, 40, 50, 80,000 a year. A price cost like this is not, they're not sitting in Florida in a million dollar home. This is going to make or break the business. It's definitely going to increase in uh, reduced hours and, um, and not new hiring. It's just going to come from something automation, um, who knows what. Ben, appreciate the call. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for tuning in here on The Bill Kelly Show. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A 23-year-old Mississauga man who fell from a snow and ice-covered cliff at Albion Falls a couple of winters ago is now suing the city. His name's Corey Dixon. He's seeking just under $400,000 to compensate for his pain and suffering and for what he says is the medical care needed to get back to his pre-accident capacity. Suffered various injuries, including a ruptured spleen, 30 broken bones, and memory loss. Now, because there is a lawsuit in effect... We're not necessarily going to ask our next guest about the lawsuit because, well, he's not going to be allowed to comment on it. Uh, Ward 6 Councillor Tom Jackson is our guest here on The Bill Kelly Show and joins us now. Tom, Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick, for having me on, and above all, good health to you and your family. Same year. to you. Thank you very much. So the reason we're having you on is you are a, uh, a proponent of looking into the feasibility of a viewing platform at Albion Falls. So where does that stand? So, Rick, um, first of all, just if I could quickly, to rewind the tape about 13 years ago, I was uh, fortunate to, through the Hamilton Future Fund then, 
to get about a half a million dollars to build the existing two lookout platforms on the North parking lot of Albion Falls for safe viewing. And now to fast forward to current times, in light of the increased number of tourists and visitors uh, to many of our waterfalls, prestigious areas, and obviously site-specific for me, the Buttermilk and Albion Falls area, it was obvious to me that in spite of the increased amount of signage and fencing and and uh, communication that we've put out regarding um, to be careful and to be safe and to use some common sense, etc., when exploring the majesty of an area like Albion Falls. It was obvious to me, uh, Rick, in the last two or three summers with the explosion of visitors to our area that if there was an opportunity to possibly uh, look at building further another platform or two, this one on possibly the south side, which would be on the Mud Street side, or to even look at the feasibility of building a pathway, a stairway, safely, uh, properly designed uh, from Mountain Brow Boulevard down in front of the falls, that I was open-minded to that. And I can report to you, um, Rick, that may not be too well known, I can report to you that in November, a couple of months ago, once again at the Hamilton Future Fund uh, Board of Directors table, I was pleased that the um, combination of citizens and a few of my colleagues that sit on that board unanimously approved $45,000 uh, for design money to help our city staff, our landscape architect staff, primarily leading the the project here, the proposed uh, feasibility of this project, approve that money to look at the uh, to provide design money to look at the feasibility of if there's an opportunity to build something um, that would allow people access closer to the falls, because it's obvious to me that in spite of all the dangers and forewarnings that people, uh, for whatever reason, wish to seem to want to get closer to nature. So I'm not committed, um, Rick, to necessarily spending uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, the original estimate uh, by our city staff, our managers a year ago, was possibly up to a million dollars to build a proper staircase. But at least the design money is a first step forward towards looking at that. So is the design study now underway, or is that process going to begin soon? So the Hamilton Future Fund uh, unanimous recommendation, Rick, reports up through City Council. Their recommendation, because they're still meeting again this month of January, apparently they had several dozen applications at their meeting in June, in November, and uh, some of them apparently were held over. Mine was unanimously approved, which I'm very grateful for. Some were held over. So... It has to be ratified by City Council. I expect that uh, report from the Future Fund Board to come to City Council, hopefully by the end of this month, no later than early February. Since four of my colleagues already serve on there with the Mayor, of course I'll be uh, lobbying the rest of my colleagues. I hope that the ratification uh, will, uh, will be forthcoming at Council by end of this month, early February, and then the design can get underway accordingly. But I can tell you that city staff, between the Landscape Architect Department and Parks Department, uh, they've been intimately involved the past summer or two, obviously in terms of helping me with several of the restrictions that we put up, the additional fencing, uh, the additional directional signage, um, the uh, working with the Conservation Authority, Bruce Trail, other stakeholders, Greg Lenko, who does the Albion Fall, the Outstanding Escarpment Project, clean up every April with his hundreds of volunteers. So uh, city staff have, um, in anticipation of hopeful council ratification, I know that they've already um, are looking ahead to begin the design work, but officially, Rick, it will begin once council approves the $45,000 in the next few weeks. We're chatting with Ward 6 City Councilor Tom Jackson here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill this week. Uh, you mentioned the stairs, and you've also mentioned a, vlo- a viewing platform. The, the platform would obviously be a lot cheaper than the stairs? So, I'm I, I, based on what we did 13 years ago, but of course, you know, um, putting in cost of inflation and increased costs that come along with the years that go along, Rick, Back then, it was a half a million dollars for two lookout platforms. So I would imagine that lookout platforms could be cheaper because you can imagine the staircase itself or the pathway. I mean, I'm, I'm talking something similar to what many of us have experienced at the Gorge at Niagara Falls, where you can go out on that point to a certain point where you can't go any further but get you as close to the falls safely as possible. 
obviously that kind of design and engineering work would probably uh, take uh, a lot more resources and money. I would look back at the uh, Scarpman Stairs, Rick, which we built about 10, 11 years ago over off Mountain Brow Boulevard that I, I was uh, pleased to get support for that go right down to the bottom of the Kenilworth Access and up through the rail trail and right up to Mountain Brow Boulevard opposite Margate Avenue. Those stairs 10, 11 years ago back then costed about six to $700,000 to do them completely. So it's a significant amount of money, but we've got, it, I've always said, Rick, this recent increase in visitors and tourists to our city uh, as part of the transformation of the image of our city that outsiders are fi- finally discovering. It's, uh, it's been a nice uh, challenge and a nice problem to have. Nice that people are coming to our city and wanting to spend time and money and explore the nature and the beautiful parts of our city. And, but, of course, that's created some additional challenges with the increased hordes that have been coming and, unfortunately, the number of misadventures that have occurred. In, in terms of the viewing platform versus the stairs, uh, proponents of the stairs will say um, that, listen, if you, if you build another platform, that's great, but people are still going to want to go down and get as close as they can, and it may not prevent uh, injuries that we've seen. Uh, fair enough point, Rick. And I've been, uh, and what, I'll tell you one thing, Rick. Throughout this whole um, this whole situation and experiences uh, at Albion Falls, the last two or three summers, uh, the the civic engagement has been amazing. It's been incredible, and I want to say sincerely, although there's obviously critics on both sides of it, and there's been some harsh words expressed in terms of some of the misadventures that have occurred. Not by me, but I can just tell you by people who have uh, expressed some harsh uh, harsh comments. But uh, overall, the civic engagement has been uh, terrific and amazing, and through it has come some, uh, s- some um, really remarkable suggestions. And so, yes, I would say so far, in terms of the constituency responses I've received, uh, the stairway or pathway closer in front of Albion Falls would be the um, first preference, versus additional lookout platforms. But again, Rick, we've got to make sure that whatever we're going to do, we know the pros and cons, the upside, downsides, and the overall cost to taxpayers. If it's the increase and provides safer, uh, better viewing uh, for tourists, which helps both hospitality industry and uh, economic spinoff in our community and more people coming to Hamilton as an attraction, marvelous. But I want to make sure that uh, we're doing it properly. When looking at expenditures for a platform or a set of stairs, have we studied the economic impact that these waterfalls and and our great conservation areas have in our community? So, Rick, I don't know of actual numbers. I'm sure through our tourism department, through the HCA Conservation Authority and our Economic Development Department, we could uh, probably get some of those numbers. But I can tell you when, uh, over the years, when you've got about a half a million people at our West Harbor prior to all the recreational social amenities that we built uh, in the last 15, 20 years down at the West Harbor, Bayfront Park, all the trails, uh, the Williams Cafe, and all those other amenities, and including along the beach trail from Hutches to the Lift Canal Bridge, we've estimated approximately a half a million people come now to that area, both our own citizens and visitors to our city. I don't know the exact numbers, but I can tell you in terms of the increased volume and when we had additional bylaw enforcement that uh, City Council unanimously approved at Albion Falls this past summer and fall uh, just to forewarn people and let them know that, you know, bylaw says trespassing, you're, you're, uh, you're, lo- you're putting yourself in a position of fines, etc., violations of city bylaw. I can tell you that our own um, bylaw officers uh, kept a record in terms of the uh, number of visitors and or tickets issued, and it was amazing the thousands upon thousands that uh, were visiting our um, our prestigious areas like Albion Falls. And le- let me say, Rick, obviously there's the Devil's Punch Bowl, Tews, Webster Falls, many of these gorgeous falls across our city. We're a city of waterfalls, but uh, I would humbly suggest maybe that in the last four to five years, the, uh, the uh, enormous uh, numbers, the sheer enormous numbers that have descended upon our city uh, potentially may have just uh, caught us off guard in terms of 
the, the, the increased attraction and the number of people that wanted to be close to our, our beautiful areas. I would say I love the fact that people from all, all over the place, not just here in the city, are coming to our city to experience you know these these uh, natural wonders, and it's great to see that they're staying here and spending money and boosting our economy. It's fantastic. I would just say for all those who are listening who haven't visited any or, or visited one, maybe have a bucket list to visit them all, just be careful. Just be careful when you're there. That's what we were trying to message throughout, Rick. And, um, you know, obviously I, I, I don't want to comment on a number of the misadventures, the two or three over the number of years that sadly most tragically resulted in death. Um, but um, the messaging has been, please stay on the marked pathways. Please use common sense. I mean, Rick, for years, even before this past summer, or two with the increased amount of restrictions, the structural restrictions and increased signage that we've put up. We've always had signs indicating at a certain point, you know, beyond this point, use at own risk, city assumes no liability, and we just want people to explore and enjoy and have a great outing safely and carefully and and hopefully reduce and eliminate the number of misadventures down the road. Because don't forget our emergency responders who have done an outstanding, extraordinary job each time, the firefighters primarily, and of course ambulance uh, paramedics that show up from time to time, have had to be called into action, and uh, that's potentially putting themselves at risk too, even though I know they're trained for that type of occupation. Well said. Tom, thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me on, Rick. My pleasure. Take care. Tom Jackson, City Councilor, Ward 6 in the City of Hamilton, talking about uh, the latest... Um, well, not really the latest spill, but a spill that has now translated into a lawsuit. And again, Tom could not speak to the lawsuit because, well, it's now going to be before the courts, and we understand that. But a platform versus a set of stairs at Albion Falls or, or wherever wherever they put these platforms or stairs around our communities in regards to these natural wonders, I think at the end of the day, the people who are visiting these places should have it in their brain that there is an element of danger if they cross the line, if they go too far in or too far down. So back to Corey Dixon. He's the 23-year-old Mississauga man who fell at Albion Falls two winters ago and is now suing the city for $390,000. He wants compensation for his pain and suffering, and for what he says is the medical care needed to get back to his pre-accident capacity. And I, I recall originally talking to Corey, um, it must have been a few weeks, or maybe even a couple of months after this happened, that he, and he told me plain as day, was not going to launch a lawsuit, but he wanted to let others know about the pitfalls and the dangers around visiting places like Albion Falls. But now he's decided that, listen, I have uh, injuries that I have to recover from, and obviously he needs a lot of rehab. He needs money to go to go do that rehab and to get better. And I understand that, and he's going to do what he's got to do. But I'm going to open up the phones, and I want to hear from you. How do you feel about this lawsuit? Let's not forget, this is two winters ago, so this is... Not only in February, but this happened after midnight. Dixon was visiting Albion Falls with friends after midnight in February of 2016 when he fell about nine meters from the cliff. So how do you feel about this lawsuit? 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Do you think that he has the right to say, hey, city, you got to give me some money here. This was an unsafe place, and it doesn't matter if I was in Albion Falls after midnight in February 2016. The lawsuit says the stairs were built by the city. They were not fenced or well lit. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Dave has called into the program. Hey, Dave. Hi, Rick. I think you uh, hit it. Nail on the head when you said common sense earlier. Um, I feel sorry for the poor guy. I really do. Me I mean, too. You know, it's a tragical thing. Tragic thing. Uh, if you want to extrapolate that, are they going to have people now suing when they sprain their ankle on the Bruce Trail, 15 miles away from Hamilton? You know, I mean, there's, you know, just a law of common sense. And I mean, when you when you go to a cliff in the winter time, it's not the best decision in the world 
And uh, the government and the people cannot be responsible for bad decisions. I mean, I, I could see if uh, he was walking along the roadway and it was icy and he slipped and went down the down the cliff. Okay, that's one story. But uh, I do feel bad for the guy. But I really, you know, I, I don't think he should win that lawsuit personally. I really don't. But that's just my opinion. Appreciate the call. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Uh, let's go to Jamie, who's called in. Hey, Jamie, how are you? Hey, good. How are you? Not too bad. What do you think? Good. Well, I'm. Uh, I, I don't think I'm alone in feeling this way. This is this so ridiculous. It's not even funny. In fact, I think, I, again, as a previous caller said, I feel bad that this has happened to this guy. But the bottom line is, he was trespassing. It was after midnight, and you know, we, we try to pride ourselves as Canadians to not get involved in ridiculous lawsuits. This is so far ridiculous. It's not even funny. He should be charged with trespassing. And I think he should actually be charged for what the cost was for the rescue unit to go and get him. Good points. Thanks, Jamie. Let's go to Brian. Hey, Brian, how are you? Hi. Yeah, I think this is an absolute frivolous lawsuit as well. Um, you know, if I walk through a park and trip over a twig, am I, do I now have a, a few hundred thousand dollar lawsuit against the city? People need to start taking some responsibility for themselves and, uh, you know, when it comes to these areas of the city, it should be used at your own risk. I understand the city having a responsibility to, to keep our sidewalks accessible for all types of people. But this is, you know, you're, this is kind of like an extreme sport. It should be used at your own risk, and you accept the liability. It's like going to a baseball game. If you get hit with a baseball, who are you going to sue? The manufacturer of the baseball, the baseball player? Like, you have to accept some risk in life. Well said. Thanks for the call, Brian. Thank you. Ula is on the line. Hey, Ula, thanks for calling. No problem. How are you? Not too bad. How does this make you feel? Um, I personally don't think he should be doing the lawsuit either. I think it really comes down to negligence because I myself like to go down to Albion Falls and hike as well. But I know like, if I want to get really, really close, I can't be using the platforms or the stairs. So I make the effort to go when it is well lit, when it is nice outside, when I have my running shoes on, for example, not my flip-flops. So the big thing with the waterfalls is the city already knows there's going to be issues. I mean, waterfalls have inherently dangers and risks with them. So people should be able to go down to the waterfalls and be careful on how they're doing it and make the right choices. I do feel bad because he fell down. I mean, everyone that goes through those things is going to have a difficult time. But when you're going down there, it's your negligence and your responsibility because the city's already putting forth that duty to care. They've already put forth the stairs and the platforms. But let's be real. You can't get super, super close. Because it just you just can't build it that close. So when people do want to get a closer look, um, they should be making the right decisions, just like I have. And thankfully, like nothing's happened to me so far. Thanks for the call, Ula. No problem. Trevor's on the line. Hey, Trevor. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm good. You? How do you feel? I feel kind of uh, weird about the situation. Um, uh, it's kind of making good Saturday Night Live forget who goes hiking in the middle of the night and in February. Yeah, nobody. They already know that it's a dangerous situation they're getting into. It's dangerous in the daytime. Why would they go out in the middle of the night? <laughs> that, that's a question we'll never know. Thanks for the call, Trevor. One more, and it is Doug. Doug, you get the final word. Hey, I hope the city stands behind this because um, it opens up the door. This guy's not gone for millions. He's gone for low. The city's going to take a look at this and go, what's it going to cost us to defend it, and what's going to be cheaper, paying out the 300 or defending it? I hope they stick to their guns and they defend it no matter what it costs because it's just opening a floodgate. Hope so, too. Thanks for the call, Doug. Take care. Hey, great response. Thanks for all our callers and our listeners. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.